What a week. Today, I'm humbled and grateful to have Pastor Darrell Briscoe on the Work and Play podcast, and we're going to talk all about the racial crisis that we have been in and how the church, how believers, how you and I should respond during this time, during a racial crisis. And even more than that, how to bounce forward, not bounce back, when this current storm that we're in starts to quiet. Dr. Harold Darrell Briscoe is a writer, a speaker, a pastor, a public theologian, and a recent author. He focuses on the intersectionality of race, religion, law, and power. He's married to Tracy and has four beautiful children, Luke, Noah, Amelia, Hope, and Ella Grace. I'm going to be honest with you. I get real in this episode. I cry. We both do, actually. I mess up. I'm sure I do. I ask him some vulnerable questions. We give each other a ton of grace and love as a brother and sister in Christ. And I hope that you are encouraged by this conversation. So for a moment, let's put aside our politics and let's come together as a church, as believers, and lean in and listen. You're listening to Work and Play with Nancy Ray, episode 66. Much of our daily lives can be divided into two categories, work and play. Simply put, that is where our life and our legacy take place. This is a podcast all about learning to work and play well, which leads to a healthy soul and a fulfilling life. Let's dive in. Okay, well, thank you so much, Pastor Darrell, for joining me on the Work and Play podcast in this incredibly, I don't know, emotional and tense and important time in our history. It's such an honor to have you here, and I'm so grateful for you. And um, yeah, I'm just grateful to have your voice here. And I'm hoping, I'm praying that this time where we can just share an honest conversation together will be a blessing. I know it will be, but will be a blessing to my listeners and also just informative and helpful. So thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's just start by you explaining a little bit about you. I would love to hear who you are. Um, I'd love to hear about your family, just so you can uh, explain to anybody who's listening just who you are and what you do. Right on. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me on the podcast. My wife is a ginormous fan of yours, uh, your <laughs> photography, your Instagram account, your podcast. When she found out I was going to be on it, she's like, you've got to get her autograph. You've got to do some type of thing. I need some type of memorabilia to mark this occasion. Because, you know, we met maybe a year or two ago at a wedding. Yeah, yeah, we met yeah. at a wedding. You were, you were doing the photography. I was the officiant. And I, yep. was doing, I, I think I had like an Insta story or something. And she saw you on the Insta story and she texted me in like giant cap locks. And I was like, that's Nancy Ray. And I'm like, well, <laughs> who is Nan who's Nancy Ray? I don't even, she's like, please get her picture. Like tell her. So it's a big deal for our family. Like this is a, 
this is big leagues right here. So we, I mean, forget you are Gail so King. Sweet. No, forget Gail King or Oprah. This is Nancy Ray. All right, we're gonna play <laughs> with Nancy Ray. All right, so here we are. <laughs> Listen, that is the sweetest form of flattery. Also, I well, you know, I love Tracy, your wife. You yes, also, yes. I, the more you get to know me, I tell everybody who says these things about me. I'm like, listen, if you only knew the level of dork that I really am. Like I'm such (laughs) a dork. Like you would, I promise you're, you know, (laughs) high thoughts about me would lower if you hung out with me, but no, I'm really grateful. You're so sweet. I do remember at that reception, taking a selfie Mm. with you and sending it to your wife and just cracking up. That was awesome. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, no, that wedding was so fun and it was so so cool how we connected because, you know, as vendors hanging out, in the background while everyone else is eating, we just struck up a conversation. And I just remember you brought the heat during that ceremony. Like Mm. you brought the gospel, you preached Mm. your heart. I also remember you like took the couple aside and had this like secret moment with them. Yeah. And I was like, what's Uh going on? Like this dude really (laughs) cares. You know, it was just really, really cool um, to see. I always get really excited when I see officiants because, you know, I, have photographed tons of weddings, but right on. Anyway, that was really fun that we got connected in that way. It really yeah, was. it was about a year ago, about a and year that we've ago. stayed connected yeah. since then. Right? So, yeah, you yeah. came to visit the church, and a little bit about me. Like I'm, I'm married to Tracy. We've been married for about nine years. Uh, we have four beautiful, fun, energetic kids: uh, two boys, two girls, Luke, Noah, Amelia, Hope, and Ella Grace. Uh, and they are six, four, three, and two. So it is, as you can imagine, um, uh, as you can relate, rather, like it is a house of uh, excitement, uh, loudness, oh, yeah. um, 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 just, just, just fighting, loving. It, it, it's just life is so full. And yes. um, someone told me the other day, um, you know, Darrell, the the days are long, but the years are short with these yeah. kids. You know, you, you just you just have long days, especially in quarantine, and you're at the house, you can't go oh, anywhere. Yeah. But you just have to keep the proper perspective that man, the years are short. Enjoy it, live it, uh, be fully present in it, and and that's uh that's kind of helped uh to always recalibrate my perspective when times get challenging, you know, with the kids and and just juggling life, you know, hundred um, percent, yeah. And so yeah, right there in it with you, yep, right on. Right on. And so I've been a pastor uh, for about 10 years. I just started my own church in downtown Durham, Bull City. Uh, we love uh, Durham. We love the community. And um, it's called the 6-8 church. That comes from the, the verse Micah 6-8. It's a scripture that really has marked our lives. Uh, what does God want of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God as a church? We're all about fighting for justice. We're all about kindness and mercy and compassion. And our biggest desire is to see people walk with God, uh, to see people um, uh, be healed, be full, be delivered um, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's who we are. We're about a year in existence. We just started weekly services this January and then go figure March shut us down, but we still been yep. able to do a bunch of stuff in the community, still gathering together via Zoom, just kind of doing whatever one else is doing, kind of connecting from a virtual standpoint. But yeah, that's uh, a little bit about me. Life is full and exciting and uh, happy to be here today. Yeah, I love that. Mm. Okay. So, and you also just released a book yeah, that just right came out. Right on. And I'm, I, full disclosure, Pastor Durrell, I 
am not done reading it. I said I was really going to try by the time of this interview, but I was like, I don't know. You know how it is with little kids. And, but anyway, I'm, I'm part of the way through it. It's been really eye opening, really helpful for me. And we're going to talk a lot about just the principles in that book today. Um, the things that you share, but I love, so the title, which I feel like has been prophetic and timely, but Mm -hmm. right. Like the title is there's a storm coming, how the American church can lead through times of racial crisis. And that is where we find ourselves. We are in the middle of a storm. We are in the middle of one of the biggest storms that we've ever seen in my lifetime. And yeah, and I think that's the question on a lot of our hearts is how can the American church lead through times of racial crisis? And you you break it down in four parts. We're going to talk about that today. But just from my perspective, and what I, I have seen in your life and in Tracy's life, you know, I just want to encourage you because you are leading. You know, we, I brought Millie one time. I vi- was able to visit your new church one time, one service yeah, before uh-huh. quarantine, you uh-huh. know, shut us down. Yep. Um, but I just love the picture of leadership that you guys are. And, you wow. know, for those listening, you wow. don't know, you, you don't know Darrell and Tracy and you don't know the church, but, uh, you know, even your skin colors, you're a black man. Mm. Tracy's a white woman. You have yeah. four beautiful children yeah. and you have a church that is incredibly diverse yeah. and of one spirit and one heart mm. yeah. and not, not perfect. We're all learning, nope. but I just wanted to say like, thank you for that leadership in that picture. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, I've come from a church that we've been part of a church for like 13 years, incredibly diverse, lots sure. of different colors of skin and voices and ethnicities. And I love that because my heart is Jesus's prayer, which is as in heaven here on earth. That's right. And so when we That's can right. see that visibly, I think it's powerful and I That's think right. it's, you know, important. And I just wanted to share that with my listeners, because I feel like you might not know that you're not going to know that if you're listening, right? You can't see when you're listening. This is a podcast, but I just wanted to kind of paint that picture. Um, I feel like your church, you know, it's it's starting out, it's small, but it's mighty. And I'm really excited to yeah. see where you go. Right on. Thank um, you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump into just the contents of your book and answering that question. How can the American church, how can believers lead through times of racial crisis? And you break it down into four parts, which is realization, readiness, responsiveness, and renewal. And I'd like to kind of break each one of those down and just get your thoughts and your heart and perspective on those. Um, so let's just first talk about realization, because I think that might be where a lot of us are right now in just the storm that we're in. Um, we have to realize what's what's going on and what's happening. So can you speak to realization and that right. um, part of this kind of equation of allowing the church to lead? Absolutely. Yeah. Right on. Well, realization, really the entire framework, uh, the four R's, uh, comes from my work in uh, the field of public policy. So before ministry, I was actually in government for six years. I was inspired to go into government after Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast and decimated New Orleans. I remember sitting, watching TV as a 20-year-old kid and being like, just completely shell-shocked and vowing that I would be in government and work to make sure something like this doesn't happen again, that government would be effective, efficient in its response. And so I, for years, I focused on, you know, public policy, you know, neighborhood revitalization. 
natural disaster resiliency, climate change adaptation, kind of big words, but essentially what the kind of the, the, the genesis of this book was occurred when I started to see similarities between climate change and the drastic shifts that have occurred in America's socio-political climate over the last decade. And I, and I started to see these parallels between powerful storms like hurricanes and these racialized storms, these crises that we're experiencing right now with the death of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, right? Like these crises that produce an enormous amount of shock, division, and outrage across the cultural landscape of America. And so I started to look at this from the lens of mitigation, from the lens of preparedness, which is kind of, you know, harkens back to um, kind of my previous work before ministry, which was how can we make sure coastal communities are becoming resilient and building the proper infrastructure and capacity to weather these storms? Uh, and, and, and so I started, as I started to think about that realm of, uh, climate change and, and natural disaster resiliency, I like, I was like, wait a minute, like, what if the church started to look at this issue, these racial crises from the lens of preparedness? Like we have to realize that our socio-political climate has changed. We've had a black president. We, uh, we are experiencing massive uh, uh, demographic shifts in our country. We're seeing the rise of the alt-right. We're seeing the rise of the powerful social justice movement known as Black Lives Matter. We've got to realize that stuff is changing. Times are changing. And we've got to be ready for that. And we've got to be aware of that. And that needs to inform decisions that we take, that we take as an organization, but also as individuals. So we have to realize, the first point is realization, as you said, and it's all about defining what a racial crisis is and um, why they hurt the church if the church is silent or, you know, characterized by inaction. So that's what realization is all about. I love this part in the book um, where you say, if the church is to truly be a healing place for a hurting world, then it must take the lead in truth finding and reconciliation. That's right. It must become a place with deep psychological and emotional wounds that congregants suffer from racialized storms can be addressed, rehabilitated, and healed. And I thought that was beautiful because really in this realization process, as the church, you know, we have to know like there is some pain in the black community that we haven't really been realizing. Absolutely. And you know, we need to be a voice yes. to to yes. say welcome. Like here are the answers for that instead right. of oh that kind of scares me or I don't know what to do with that. So, how do we how do we kind of come to that realization? Like are do you have any encouragement like as a pastor like how do we come to that realization and really open our eyes as a church? Absolutely. Yeah. Awareness is awareness, realization, being cognizant of other people's pain is so critical um, to dealing with these crises, to um, loving, encouraging, and being an instrument of healing of people of color in predominantly white spaces. Um, and a lot of times I think the realization part is hard because really Western Euro-American ideology and theology is kind of rooted in this hyper-individualism. And so it's this kind of belief that really is a strong current in our social political river. And I think a lot of times it blinds Christians, 
my white brothers and sisters to the ramifications of social structures that produce inequality, you know? And so one of the things that we can start doing in, uh, that I highlight in my book is we need to start taking concrete steps to educate ourselves on three um, uh, particular issues. Uh, the America's historical record on race, systemic inequalities and racism that happens today, and then also the lived experience of Black people. Uh, the, you know, and, and, and I think that can be done practically from watching documentaries and reading books. If you go on my website, DarrellBriscoe.com, that's D-O-R-R-E-L-L, Briscoe, B-R-I-S-C-O-E. Um, if you go into the resource page, I have about three to four books, documentaries, and public theologians and activists that you can follow that can help educate you and help you and help make you more aware of what is going on and why people are so hurt, why there's so much outrage and rage. I mean, it, 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 it almost shocks you when you see the news and you're like, you see the rioting, you see the protests, you see the tears, you see the anguish. Well, you have to understand that that is rooted in historical trauma. It goes beyond just an individualized occurrence of police brutality. It is compounded with and tied to decades, centuries of historical trauma at the hands of police and other structures that we've put in place that have diminished the image of God and our black brothers and sisters. So I would practical step here. Number one, check out that resource page. Listen, we're all getting flooded with things that we can do. There's so much, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more uh, in the podcast. There's, there's just a flood of information. Do this, do that, donate here, sign up here, do this. Um, I think the most important thing for you to do is to, for God to work and mend on your heart, for the great potter to shape and get in there and work on your heart so you can be filled with compassion. So like the Bible says, you can love mercy and kindness and see this issue through the lens of empathy and understanding. And I think that happens when we expose ourselves to pain. We expose ourselves to the root of the wound. And that is done through some fantastic documentaries and resources that I have on my website. And so I would encourage you, really, the, uh, I'll give you one documentary, White Like Me and 13th. Uh, White Like Me is on YouTube. 13th is on Netflix. Um, fantastic documentaries to watch. And then the book, a great book that you can start is Tears We Cannot Stop by Michael Eric Dyson, a fantastic book about a fantastic book about where the pain comes from in the black community. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing those. I'll be sure to link all of those links on the show notes of this uh, podcast episode so people can easily find them too. Yeah, I think education is absolutely where it starts. And I think there's this, I don't know, there's, I'm finding myself, if I can be totally honest, this hesitation to educate myself just because it feels so overwhelming, like sure. you said. Yeah. And there are so many resources. And I'm kind of afraid that I'm going to choose the wrong one, which I don't know if there's a wrong. I guess at this point, there's not like a wrong one that you can choose because, you know, ge getting educated, there's nothing wrong with reading someone else's opinion or um, ex set of experiences. Those are the things we need to be doing right now. But I think there's just a lot of emotions with this, right? That we're all kind of sifting through. Um, 
And it's like, which one, where do I start? Which one do I do? But I think the good thing and the important thing to remember is if we can focus on our hearts, just like you said, if we can just allow the Lord to give us more humility, That's it. more of a listening ear, That's right. That's right. and and just the willingness to say, Lord, you teach me, you guide this path, then He will lead us and help us use wisdom to really accept what we need to hear, to to have the church make the greater change. Absolutely. Um, yes. And us as individuals, because that is the church, right? It's not a building, exactly. it's the people. The body, right. So, yeah, that's just me kind of processing with you, Pastor Durrell. Love like, that. Yeah, it's like it's all and Nancy, it's, and, and you gotta you gotta you gotta give yourself grace. Yeah. Um, and, and and some folks may not like the that I say that. Some folks who are uh you know woke, you know part of the movement. Let's go, like grace, like nah, like we need y'all in this thing. We need to do this. We need to do that. Listen, the fact that we are seeing a groundswell of support by white folk who um certainly aren't racist, but probably or maybe a bit ignorant or unaware of how deep this wound goes. The fact that we are seeing such a groundswell of support, but we are seeing folks that are saying, you know what? I am listening. I am learning. I am praying. This is a historical moment in our nation's uh, 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 um, story. And um, you have to give yourself grace and understand. And I quote this, uh, uh, this hashtag all the time. It's from the late rapper Nipsey Hussle. He, it's the title of his mix, one of his most popular mixtapes. And he says, the marathon continues. You'll see me quoting that. And I, and I, why do I, why do I do that? I, because this work is a marathon. It is not a sprint. You don't uh, run a hundred meters really fast and all right, I'm completely knowledgeable and I'm filled with insight and I know exactly where to volunteer my time and mobilize my resources and spheres of influence. It is a marathon. And so we have to pace ourselves. We've got to get into a rhythm of grace, and we have to continue to pray, uh, work, um, but 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 also give ourselves a, a bit of grace here, not to be and don't beat yourself up for being so overwhelmed with everything going on. Yeah, and we all need grace. I mean, every day, yeah. right? We all yep. need mm-hmm. grace, no matter where you find yourself in this journey. We need more grace, you know. And praise God that His mercies are new every morning. And you're right; it's a marathon. And thank goodness his mercies will be new every single morning as we continue forward in this. So yeah, that's a good word. This this part of your book, I felt like how I was like Pastor Drill. How in the world did you write this like three years ago? Because I feel like this was written for this week in particular. Yeah. But you said technology. If not, so you have this whole page about technology. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but all of it. I was like mind blown. This is exactly what's happening. Um, but talking about social media, I think you know a lot of us have felt really heavy, really emotionally kind of stirred up, a lot of different emotions sure. all week. Sure. I can't even imagine what it's been sure. like for the black community. I feel like mm. I, there's no way for mm. me to know. Mm. But just con- every time you pick up your phone, hmm. it's almost like this, oh, it's just this <laughs> lot that we're all kind of seeing and feeling. Right. And you said in your book, technology, if not put in its proper place, can rob us of the ability to listen with empathy. It steals intentionality and vulnerability. If the church is to be a vibrant community filled with flawed people, it must acknowledge the potential pitfalls and perils of taking to social media to air out opinions during heated moments that affect 
our sociopolitical landscape. Absolutely. Can you speak to that for a minute? That's great. Yeah, digital. Yeah, that was one of my eight factors that I um, argue that I stated that are that's leading to great sociopolitical climate change. Um, it's yes, the media. You know, my dad was in TV news for twenty years. Um, he was a professor in communications. I grew up in the world of TV news, and the media certainly drives narratives, and they drive off ratings. Let's be clear. However, we, because of technological advancements, we now have the ability in real time to capture information, footage, blast it, it's shared, and now it creates this new narrative. It, it, it drives the news cycle in a way, right? I mean, think about it. It wasn't yeah. CNN or Fox News or MSNBC recording George Floyd's death. It was bystanders with a camera phone that was in real time recording a man being executed, you know? Um, and so mm-hmm. what we have to realize is there is great power and advantage in social media, but it can also devolve into this evil, mean-spirited back and forth. So I argue, you know, I believe that we need to look at it, our social media accounts, uh, what we post, we have to look at that through two things. Two, uh, number one, we, we've, we've got to look at it through the context of civility and constructive dialogue. Uh, one thing that I've been encouraged to see on many of my white friends and white folks, other you know, acquaintances, is um, you know, the hashtag listening and learning or listening, learning. Um, it's this pause that they're taking to go, okay, okay, oh, let me, I'm, I'm digesting this thing here. I, 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 did, I never wanted to eat it before because I always thought it tastes nasty, right? <laughs> but now, mm-hmm. I'm, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna taste this thing. I'm gonna digest this thing, and, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen and learn here. That's what we need more, um, as opposed to knee jerk reactions uh, that we post, that we fire out there, that um, we haven't taken the time to gather our thoughts and. There's going to be a lot of different things out there that triggers us. Um, we're seeing constant images of police brutality in the forms of, uh, or at least um, in reaction to protests. We're seeing rioting and looting. Uh, I believe from a, a small handful, I don't think that's the majority of uh, peaceful protests and the people that are out there doing that. But we're seeing that. We're seeing cities that we love. Um, um, be, be damaged and destroyed. Small businesses that have already been suffering under COVID-19 and now are dealing with another pandemic, you know? Um, and so I think just taking time to pause, collect our thoughts, listen, learn, and pray before we post things. Take into account the dignity and the respect of others. Listen, if I just come out here and blast well, you white folks need to use your white privilege. What are y'all doing? You got to use your platform, power, and privilege. Do this. I've got to realize that there are some white folks that don't understand that terminology that see that as a direct attack on the hard work that they have done their entire lives. So I have to take into account their dignity. I have to take into account where they're from. And I need to communicate with grace and with truth and with civility. And I think that is so critical in this digital age that we're living in today. I couldn't agree more. I think coming back to the truth that 
We are all made in God's image, and we all have that inherent dignity. And there is a safety that's found in Instagram or Twitter or whatever social media platform you use where you feel safe enough to say something that you would never have the boldness to say to someone's face. <laughs> right, right, right. You yep. know, I I care so deeply. Darrell, if you knew me, you you would know. I mean, you do know me, but maybe not on this level yet. You would know that I I take everything to heart. You know, I I am a person. And even though I somehow have accumulated somewhat of a following on Instagram, every comment and message affects my heart, my mind, sure. my home. I feel like emotional saying this just because I, mm. I care deeply. And I think we have got to start believing the best in mm. other people. Because I think what I've seen and experienced, even in just the past few weeks, is you know, my brown and black colored friends, but also my white colored friends who, <laughs> white colored friends, my white friends who they all, if they're a little bit further down the road of this for me, than me, like if they're a little bit further down this path and they have maybe a little bit more knowledge than me or have read more books than me or sure. learned about sure. it, they're the ones calling me out and calling mm. me names too. And I'm like, that's, that's not helping me either. No, I, not. Not. You know, I, my heart, I'm wanting to learn. And so I think if we can all totally embrace what you're saying, civility, dignity, like love, let our words, that's the way mm. we're going to move this thing forward is not pointing fingers and saying, you don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not saying I do know. I'm right. just trying to show up exactly where I am and be a real human, you know? And I think- exactly. Just giving grace, right? That is it. Like knowing that we don't all know everything. I don't know everything about you. You don't know yep. everything about me. Mm-hmm. And let's just give grace and give people the benefit of the doubt. And and that's a hard that's a hard ask. Like I'm I'm full aware that that's a hard ask with a lot of the pain that sure. people have been sure. through is to give people yep. the benefit of the doubt. But I do think that is the way forward because we all are precious and we all have feelings. And tearing each other down is not the way to bring about change. You know, like like you said, give yourself grace, give others grace. Let's move the conversation forward in a way that is loving. And yeah, I just thought that part of your book was like, oh, so timely. And like, yes, like this is not about bringing up more tension. And it it is about showing up um, in real life and, and having lasting change. Absolutely. All right, so let's talk about readiness, which is the second R yes. in this process. Mm-hmm. It's establishing readiness. And you said that you kind of framed the, these R's around natural disaster mitigation strategies, yeah. right? So tell me, what can we do to be ready? Right, right, exactly. And so I just, you know, here I just talked, I break down the terms, the concepts of adaptation, mitigation, preparedness. Um, and I'm talking about, listen, We've got to start doing the work of racial justice, reconciliation, and unity now. That is how we become ready for these crises. If we start to devote, uh, and then speaking more from an institutional standpoint, but I think that um, institutions and individuals uh, can be fairly interchangeable throughout the book. I think that you can project yourself uh, in, into uh, some of the things I talked about um, uh, when it comes to the organizations. But I'm saying, hey. We, we, okay, we, we, pat, we had the realization we need to be aware. Now we need to establish readiness. We need to work um, for actionable change within our communities 
uh, within our church context, but then also um, in our broader community. Um, and so what can we do? I talk about uh, a variety of things, but essentially I'm like, listen, we need to be aware. And I give an example of the story of Joseph in the Bible. And then I talk about, okay, let's look at what climate change adaptation experts are doing. What do they do to prepare cities, communities, organizations? And one big thing is they focus on the three C's, cooperation, collaboration, and coordination with community stakeholders. We have to realize that this storm is bigger than us. This is what happens in that field. I mean, this is, you know, I got my master's degree in public policy in Texas and then worked in Louisiana. And as I worked with these stakeholders, these organizations, we realized that we got to link up together. We've got to come together because guess what? When a Cat 4, Cat 5 storm comes, uh, that's going to be a lot bigger than me and it's going to be a lot bigger than you. So what we need to do is pull resources, pull ideas. We've got to come together to make sure that our infrastructure, our communication is uh, resilient. Uh, we're building capacity. And so the same thing, what are we doing as individuals? How are we linking up with stakeholders in our community, organizations that have been doing the work? What are we doing to lend our time, our money, our resources to these organizations that are fighting for societal change? What that does when we link up together, we are exposed to different ideas, perspectives that remove ourselves from our homogenous echo chambers and get us into different spheres, different places where we're learning, where we're growing, where we're building relationships together. Um, and I think as we do that, it not only will help us as individuals learn more, but I think also for organizations, we'll be in a better position, in a place to lead through, to respond to, and learn from these crises. So really, the big thing is cooperation, collaboration, coordination. I talk a lot about that in the book. I don't want to spend a ton of time doing that right now. But essentially, what can I do um, to link up and connect with organizations that have been doing the work? What can I envision for my organization? What strategies can I implement in my life? I think, like I said, the marathon continues. If you're going to run a marathon, a lot of times people have a goal. They say, you know, I want to run at this uh, mile pace. Uh, at mile 16, I'd like to be here. What type of metrics and goals are you giving maybe yourself or your organization when it comes to working for reconciliation, unity, and justice? And so that's why I'm just saying, hey, Let's take some time to get in this work and get ready now before the storm hits so we'll be in a better position to lead through and respond to it. That's, that's so helpful. And also, I think the big takeaway there is, you know, when I picture a Cat 4, Cat 5 hurricane coming in, you do have to link arms yes. across the board. You have to say, yes. okay, this, this is bigger than us. What do we need to do to prepare now? Yes. So that we're ready when it comes, even when it's peaceful, even when there's not even a sign of a storm on the horizon, that's the time when you need to be preparing. Otherwise, when it comes, we we won't know what to do. It's so powerful. Okay, so let's move on to responsiveness. Um, you say there's a need for timely and dynamic response when a racialized crisis occurs, which is where we are now, because it produces profound racial division and tension. And Christian leaders have to speak to this. We have Absolutely. to respond to this. We can't be silent. Yeah. Um, I've certainly learned that mm, this week. Mm. And speak to that a little bit. Sure. Like what What is the role of the church and believers in responding? 
That's so great. You know, one of the things, um, you know, being in ministry for 10 years, serving at uh, two predominantly large white churches, uh, numerous campus ministries, um, one of the things that I've seen, uh, some commonality when it comes to the issue of race, racial tension, has been uh, silence uh, from the pulpit and from the organization. Uh, it's that proclivity that's like, I don't, the, the pro- proclivity to silence that says, hey, I don't really want to rock the boat. I don't want to offend people. Um, you know, I'm not going to say anything. But the reality is, Christian leaders, my white brothers and sisters, make matters worse by not responding in times of, of crises. Um, Jim Wallace, uh, incredible public theologian, uh, leader, Christian leader, recalled, in the, and this is in the book, recalled in a conference he had with several faith leaders. He, he said that on that call, the leader of a nationwide network of black clergy said even more painful to many black pastors than America's continuing racism is the silence of white Christians. Black pastors still don't hear very many of their white clergy brothers and sisters in Christ speaking with prophetic clarity about the stark differences in the ways that white and black young men, even in their respective congregations, continue to be treated by police officers. And why the silence when almost none of the officers involved in the shooting of young African-Americans have yet to be held accountable? So I talk about, you know, in this section of the book, speaking up against injustice, using your platform, your social media. And that, listen, I think that you got to be a good steward of it. And we talked about that before, right? But how can I be a steward of my platform and my power in a way that is constructive and civil? Uh, does it mean that you got to uh, you know, post Black Lives Matter information every single day? Does it mean that you got to you know, uh, you know, Blackout Tuesday and, and this, all these things. What it does mean is that you have to be aware that you speaking up as a white person means so much. It, it shows solidarity. It shows that you see me. You see my value. You understand some of the conditions um, that I got to deal with as a young black man, as a young black woman. And you see, it, 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 it's like that picture, oh man, that picture in Genesis of Hagar running away, right, over the mistreatment, am I right on that? Hagar running away over the mistreatment that she was experiencing at the hands of Sarah. And what happens? God says, I see you. He, 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 he finds her in her pain, in her anguish, affirms her, sees her, and hears her. What about the Israelites? who were suffering under the harsh brutality of the Egyptians. What does God say to Moses? I have certainly heard their cries. I have seen their tears. I am not okay with their oppression. That is the heart of God. The the heart of God looks out and scans the horizon of folks who are being marginalized and oppressed and says, I see you. I identify with you. Guess what? I sent my brown-skinned, Afro-Asiatic, first-century, Palestinian Jew, son, Jesus Christ, yep. who lived under Roman colonization and brutality. We, you, you start doing your history oh, yeah. on how brutal the Romans were and how they subjugated entire people groups. They were ruthless, right? When you start really, like reading that history— and God says, I'm sending my son to live under that context and to, die, to identify 
with folks who are dealing with that to die for all of humanity's sin, right? Yeah. Like, God, I get so fired up about this because I'm like, this is the heart of God. Yeah. And so when you use your platform, when you call out um, racist language or jokes in your context, when you respond, the solidarity that it shows is so immense and so impactful that it, it, I, I, I'll tell this, I tell this story um, and, and I'll tell it to you real quick. Um, when the time when I was 16 years old, um, I was at a cross country camp um, in North Carolina. How about that? It was in Brevard, North Carolina. And I'm from Florida. Uh, and we stopped for the night in Macon, Georgia. You know, it was a long trip from uh, South Florida to uh, North Carolina. And I'm with my cross-country teammates. You know, all of them are white. And we're like hungry teenagers. We walk from our hotel to like, I think it was like a Denny's, you know. Yeah. And we're just, you know, scarfing on waffles and omelets, you know, at like 10 o'clock at night. And doing what teenagers uh, do, right? And, and and we're walking back to the, hot- uh, the hotel. And I see this red pickup truck um, drive past us pump the brakes, turn around, and start to follow us. And I, even as a 15-year-old kid, knew what was about to happen. I knew that they saw me. And they pulled right alongside of us. They rolled down their window. And they started screaming the N-word, throwing beer cans at me, screaming, yelling at me as loud as they could. N-word this, get out of here, boy. You ain't, you don't belong in these parts. Inward this, inward that. And what happened was, as a 15 year old kid, Dan, mm. these white kids literally had to form a human shield around me mm. as these two men followed us back to our hotel room. Once we got to the hotel room, Nancy, I, 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 I was just completely devastated. Yeah. I was embarrassed. I felt full of shame. And I didn't even know how to express my emotions. I was. Nancy, I was 15. 15, yeah. You know, I was, a, I was a kid. And no one said anything. I don't really blame them, Nancy. Like, I don't think they knew what to say. Yeah. I think the, everyone just shut the lights off and then went to bed. But Nancy, there was one boy. His name was Corbin. He didn't even go to my high school. He actually went to a rival school, but he hitched a ride with our team to, to Brevard for the cross-country camp. And I'll never forget, Nancy him getting up from the bed in this dark hotel room, coming over to my side of the bed, kneeling down, laying his hand on my shoulder. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional now. It's, it's fun. It's like, it's right. you're good. I'm later, already you know, crying. Still, it's fine. You know? It's fine. Um, <laughs> he said, actually, nearly 20 years later, but he, he um, puts his hand on my shoulder and he gives you like, Hey, get, get up. And he says, Darrell, what happened out there? And, and, and there were other art teammates were listening. They were awake. But he said, what happened out there was wrong. And it shouldn't have happened. And it was evil. But I want to let you know that I see you, I hear you, and I stand with you. And he pulled me in. The big old bear hug. This 16-year-old, goofy, nerdy white kid <laughs> who... In that moment, chose to do something about my pain, chose to stand and to vocalize his solidarity. And in that moment, Nancy, where emotional bones were shattered, 
that, that my emotional bones that were just broken and fractured. God, in an instant, used a 16-year-old skinny, skinny, nerdy white kid to start to mend and set those bones back in place. Mm. And that's what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about white folks using your platform and your voice to begin to mend broken emotional bones, to begin to be a balm to the historical trauma and wound that we have experienced. So when I talk about responding, I say, hey, listen, I, I talk about the you know, prophetic insights and prophetic leadership and what we can learn from the prophets in the Bible and how they spoke truth to power, how they spoke with moral clarity and decisiveness. Listen, that's all great. You can read that in the book. But hear my heart here. It, you being intentional, decisive, and standing with us, that is what begins to initiate the process of healing. When we see your voices, when we see you form a shield around our hearts, around our soul, sucking out that bitterness that has poisoned so many folks of color, that is what God is going to use to bring reconciliation, to bring unity, and to fight for justice and the flourishing of brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God. And so that's when I thought that, that's, that was the impetus, that was the ethos. Behind this section, it was remembering that story, Nancy, even from nearly 20 years ago, of a skinny, nerdy white kid that literally I believed God used to save me, to deliver me, to help me in a time of great crisis. Darrell, hmm. it's such a powerful story. I think, you know, as I'm just listening and crying, <laughs> you know, not a lot of, oh, well, I don't know. I, don't, I can't speak for everyone listening, but some some people have witnessed and been part of stories like that and others haven't. Yeah. And I think, just speaking for myself, and I can't speak for pastors, but as a white person, I get scared because I don't know what to say. Sure. You know, I yeah. I am with Corbin, right? Yeah. Like, my heart is yeah. like, that is evil. And I speak that again, like, that is evil, and that is wrong, and that should never have happened. Girl, you are 15. Yeah. Like, yeah. that is trauma at trauma. such a yeah. young age, yeah. and it breaks my heart. That Absolutely. I mean, that you ever had to experience that, just such shame mm. and embarrassment for no reason. Mm. I mean, it just, it's it's ugly. It's from yeah. the enemy. Yeah. It's, it's horrid. But I think— We've got to find our voice to stand up against the evil. But I think sometimes I've just been afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing, if right. I'm honest. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I, but I also am like crying because I care so deeply about it. And so mm. I think we're at this place now where we we have to respond and we have to know, like, it's yeah. not okay right. um, to not say something. But at the same time do the hard work and and live it out in our lives. So yeah. it, anyway, I just, yeah. <laughs> again, this is me like pro processing mm, things process, on yeah, my podcast. No, right. But it's just, yeah. it's so important. And I'm just so grateful yeah. for that story because yeah. God bless Corbin, you know, like mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. the heart that we should have That's it. as the church. 
to mend the broken hearts and put those broken, chattered bones back together and just weep with our brothers and sisters and wrap our bear hug arms around them and just say, like, I, I don't know what that's like, but it's wrong. And I'm, I'm so sorry you've had to walk through that. You know, there's right. nothing okay about that. And I don't know what to say, but I care and I'm standing with you. And mm. we're going to get through the rest of this podcast episode. <laughs> I know, I, I know. Have. We're about <laughs> to have a, a, a crying fest right here. It's like, you know. I know, but no. it's just, you know, that's, that those are the instances that we want to eradicate. Nancy, I'll tell you, you know, with, with Corbin, he was one of the first kids that immediately when those guys pulled up right next to us, rolled down the window, he's the one of the fir- first kids that grabbed me and shielded me. Okay. And how about this? You want to about Corbin? He went to Booker High School in Sarasota, Florida. That's where I'm from, Sarasota, Florida. I went to Riverview High School. Riverview High School is a predominantly white high school. Uh, and we would bus kids from the area where Booker High School was, Newtown. That was a black community in Sarasota, Florida. Corbin was one of the few white kids at Booker High School, mm. uh, which is a probably black school wow. in Sarasota, Florida. At least it was at the time. I'm sure it is still, it's still now. So I think there was something can be said about the fact that he was intentional about cultivating relationships with people of color. He had to because yeah. he went to school there. Yeah. He, he you, now listen, he could have been like most, a lot of white kids, white kids and, and white families that, and this is historical, this is historical fact, that when integration occurred, they took their kids out of these schools, put them into what? Private schools, Christian schools, um, whatever. They fought against integration by what do we what we know now as white flight, right? It's where we do this. It's the whole concept. And this is the whole, another conversation about systemic racism, but this kind of move, in mass move to the suburbs where you are surrounded by people that look like you. But Corbin's parents um, bucked that trend. Yeah. And, and they said, no, he's going to go to an all-black school. And so I think something can be said about the fact that this 16-year-old kid w- surrounded himself and was friends with a lot of black people. So when he saw injustice occur, when he saw um, someone trying to diminish the Imago Day in his brother, yeah. he stood up and was like, no. I'm in relationship with, with these people. These are my brothers and sisters. That's my brother. So an attack on him is an attack on me. Yeah. I'm with you. And I, so I think that's something to be said about cultivating relationships with people of color, cultivating friendships. I'm listening. I'm learning. Um, it might be a little messy. <laughs> you might say, I mean, I'm married to a white woman. We've had conversations where I'm like, oh gosh, yikes, Tracy, don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know and, and we joke about it now and it's cute and it's funny. And it's, you know, I'm not getting on her game. She, we're, we need, you know, but, but we've had these conversations we, and we laugh about it. We're like, you know, she, but, but, um, it's a, it's a marathon. It's a, it's a process. It's a journey. You got to give yourself grace. You're learning, you're listening. Don't let the fear, see, that's the enemy. In my opinion, that fear the, the, the devil wants to deposit fear. Yep, God 100%. wants to deposit courage. Yep. right. And so I think that's a trick of the enemy. And I'm, you know, getting spiritual here. I, probably, I, I try not to preach here, but don't like, preach. You're good. That's the trick of the, you know what I'm saying? Like that's a trick of the enemy. That's like, okay, let me fill them their hearts with fear yes. of saying the wrong thing, so they won't say anything at all. Like, oh, like wait a minute, no, like that's a. You know, that's a, I think that's a tactic, uh, a brilliant tactic of the enemy. It, and so I think, as, yeah, I think as, as white people, 
um, continue to listen, learn, humble themselves, be patient. And, and listen, I got to speak to my black brothers and sisters too. Listen, we've got to give, give, extend grace to them. You know, we, cause I get it. Like we've been in the struggle. We've been in the fight. We have not only are seeing in real time, the tragedy of, a of a George Floyd, of a Breonna Taylor, but that's compounded with daily microaggressions and discriminatory actions that are taken against us. And so there, there are folks that are weary. There are folks that are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I think sometimes, Nancy, that can manifest in this like frustration, you know, uh, with, with white folks. And, and, and that can be like, well, you're not doing it right. You're not. We've got to be willing to extend grace and be thankful for the support and, 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 and for the solidarity that they're, um, that they have uh, towards us. And so. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I've, I completely agree. I mean, I, I would ask my black brothers and sisters, please mm-hmm. extend grace to mm-hmm. me. Please do. Because I, I I'm a person. Yes, I right. will mess right. up, you know, right. I'm trying to use my voice, but I'm pretty, pretty positive. I'm going to mess this thing up That's along right. the way at some point. But I just don't want to give in to that right. tactic of the enemy. You know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing, so I'm not going to say anything. So true. Yeah. It's, fear is fear is a powerful thing, and I think it's good to acknowledge that in this conversation for sure, um, and just the need to give grace on both sides because we're, we're all humans. We all have different paths, different stories, different experiences, different emotions. But if we can just agree on That's the right. end goal— and what we're striving for, which is that mm-hmm. renewal, which we'll mm-hmm. talk about now. And and also that we're all angry and fighting against the common enemy, right. which is evil right. and racism, right. you know, right. and, and let's link arms in that and not get so caught up in all the details and the rights and wrongs. And I get that we're going to mess up and you're right. It's messy, but Amen. let's just keep our eye on the prize, right? right. On, on that end goal of the marathon. So, so renewal, let's yes, like take yes. a deep breath and like <laughs> focus on this part because yeah. this is the hope and this is the thing that we think in the midst of this mess we are all longing for and striving for. And it's not going to be perfect this side of heaven. Let's go ahead and say that. It's not going to be perfect, but I, I also don't want to say, oh, because it's not going to, we're never going to attain this, this side of heaven. Let's not try for it. Mm-hmm. No, as in heaven here on earth, let's Let's do this and let's go after renewal because you say renewal radically challenges faith leaders and congregations to reorient who they are, how they do church after a racialized storm. Renewal is all about learning and implementing changes so that churches can become resilient institutions in the face of changing sociopolitical climate. So let's talk about renewal. Absolutely. You know, renewal comes from, and again, it comes from that strategy, you know, uh, strategies and the thought and ideology of climate change adaptation and natural disaster mitigation. You know, practitioners in uh, these fields, when they ask themselves, when disasters occur, what can we learn from them? How can they be used as a catalyst to seek greater institutional change to be better prepared for the next storm. So we got to begin to look at these uh, uh, these crises, a uh, uh, George Floyd, a Breonna Taylor, a Philando Castillo, a Charleston Nine, a Trayvon Martin, right? Uh, a Keith Lamont Scott, Terrence Crutcher. Instead of just saying, okay, that was really bad. Oh my gosh, this is so bad. I didn't know, you know, folks were, were still dealing with this stuff. 
how can we use this issue in the severity of it, the fever pitch? How can we use it as a catalyst to change um, what needs to shift in our lives? You know, we've got to harness the energy that these crises, and this is in page 154 of the book, harness the energy these crises bring and use it to our advantage, our advantage of, of fighting against racial discord and division. Um, our, you know, we, we've got to think through, okay, what can we learn? Because a lot of times we quickly kind of had this amnesia. We forget, we move on. Um, and um, it, it, we, we have to realize that, listen, we've got a small window of time here to respond to these events. And so what can we learn? What and how can we these, these things be seen as uh, balls of energy in a way that help us begin the process of bringing new life and vigor to individuals and organizations and communities um, to help us stay in this fight, to help us learn from what we've experienced. And so I just challenge people in this section, don't, don't, don't just try to move, get, get past the storm, right? I mean, the, the whole concept, there's a storm coming, comes from just my time growing up in Florida. You know, when, when we would say that to each other, we're like, oh, that means that there's a hurricane coming. Yeah. And guess what you got to do? You got to, you got to, you got to board up the windows. You, you got to buy a bunch of water. I mean, you know, you know, Florida sticks out like a sore thumb in the ocean, right? <laughs> so we get, you know, you grow up in Florida, you're like, oh man, there's a storm coming. There's a storm coming. Yeah, there's a storm coming. Oh man. Okay. So when we say that, that means that's a base, that's a call for action. But a lot of times we just try to get through the storm. But what if we take time? and process of what we can learn from the storm, what we can learn from ourselves, you know, as we process through emotions and thoughts and feelings towards these things. Um, That's my, my heart's desire when it comes to um, uh, this. I think this is in page 159 of the book. It's common to hear the phrase bounce back when talking about recovery from a major storm. Mm. Public discourse has focused on how to get these communities to bounce back from these storms. However, what would it look like instead of bouncing back if these communities bounced forward? Mm. What have these communities learned about planning, vulnerability, storm readiness, and recovery? So, I'm, I, you know, project, you know, yourself uh, into that. You know, uh, if you're a pastor, if you're a Christian leader, a faith leader, um, what can I learn? about vulnerability in my community? What can I learn about recovery? Um, again, this, you know, what can I learn about um, bouncing forward and being in a place where I am being a part of the process of healing and hope? Uh, I am being a place of a beacon where unity is, uh, is, is being radiated in our community. And so I could, I'm rambling here, but essentially that's, kind of the heart behind that section, bouncing forward. What can we learn and utilizing these things as a catalyst for greater change in our own lives? So good. And that is where we find ourselves right now, like in this storm and where we are, you know, I'm thankful. I do feel, um, I feel like we are going to bounce forward. My, My friend Shante just posted on her Instagram She's hopeful, but skeptical, Mm. you know, she's hopeful that we're going to bounce forward, but a little skeptical because she doesn't really know if she believes it's actually going to happen. And I think this is just a time for us to really 
stop and and ask ourselves how can we really bounce forward at an individual level because that's where it starts but also i think it's just really important for the church to be thinking that and our businesses to be thinking that right. you know how can we right. really take this forward and let this produce lasting change in us right and i think that comes from and, and right like the framework the racial crisis framework the four hours it's a cycle Right. You fall. So how do you new, how do you renew? How can you learn? Well, you learn by continuing to be, be becoming more aware be, by, by realizing what is going on. Yeah. And as you realize, you start to get ready. And when you get ready, you're in a better position to respond because you've done the work. You've been in the trenches. Yeah. You've been you've been aware, you know, and then guess what? The next time this crisis hits, hopefully we can reduce the severity right. and disruption of it, you know, um, from being in a better position to be ready and to respond. Uh, but if it occurs again, guess what? We're learning more, yeah. you know, and we're, we're utilizing it and harnessing it for even more change, you know? And so, yeah. So good. All right. So I'm going to be, uh, that's, I, I want to take this conversation to a point that's like me being real with Darrell, where I'm at, mm. um, talking about th- emotions that I've experienced. I feel like, Pastor Darrell, I, I'm thankful for you. I feel like this is a safe space to just kind of talk about some things. And I think people listening might also relate to this. And I would just love for you to speak into these things because this is just honestly where I've been at. So um, I think this last week, what I've seen on Instagram, social media, there's been a lot of controversial things said to me or Mm. that I've kind Mm. of taken from different people's Instagram captions or whatever, you know? So a couple of examples, you know, speak up, don't be silent. Mm. Don't, you know, don't side with the oppressor. Okay. So I speak up or say something or somebody else says, and then when you do speak up, oh man, totally said the wrong thing. You're getting like slammed for Mm -hmm. it. You know, Mm -hmm. post the black square, you know, blackout Tuesday, do the thing. No, no, no. Take the black square down. That that is not a way to (laughs) support your black community. You know, reach out to a black friend, call them, don't text because that's offensive. But then when I did that, one of my black friends was like, Hey, Text me. This is the only thing I can do right now because I'm going to cry. Right. You know, right. don't ask your black friends. You've got to do the work yourself. You know, feel empathy for them, but don't cry. Mm. You know, feel empathy. Try to have a heart for them, but you can't cry because white women's tears are oppressive and uh, all those things. And I'm like, I don't, so I much. am right. so like, I feel like I have been like a ping pong ball mm-hmm. and it's <laughs> yeah. exhausting. Yeah. I'm not comparing my exhaustion to the exhaustion of the black community course, at course. all. I'm just speaking from where I'm at. Right. Yeah. Sure. And so, if you can say, this is me just being very real. Sure. Like if I would just love for you to speak to that. And and what would you, what would you say to all of that, that I'm feeling right now? You know, I, I, I don't know if I could add anything else than what I, I have said in the, in the, in this interview, which is, um, it, it, it is a marathon. There's uh, a lot to learn. You've got to pace yourself. You, um, do, um, try not to take it, um, you know, um, try not to t- uh, take it too personally. Yeah. Um, give extend, give grace to yourself, but also hear me as a black man saying that the black community, we got to give extend grace as well. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, shoot the whole blackout square, you know, I, I did it. And, um, the, you know, I put hashtag black lives matter and then some, someone corrected me. Like, don't put that. That's messing up the, that's messing up the blood <laughs> square. Oh, oh gosh, I'll, turn, I'll take it down. You know what I'm saying? I Here I am. I've been in this work for years. <laughs> yeah. have my dissertation in this stuff. 
you know, literally a quote unquote, you know, scholar, if you will, uh, on this, this issue. And I'm getting it wrong, you know? And, and so I'm like, oh gosh, I mean, and, and so it, it, um, I, I think the, the, the more you're educated on this stuff and aware of this stuff and learning from this stuff, the more I think, uh, poise and maybe etiquette when it comes to language and what to do. I think that, I think that will help you the more you're edged. It's like, it's like a language, right? Absolutely. Like if, if I'm, if I'm immersing myself in a language, if I move to Spain for two months and I'm constantly surrounded by it, I'm immersed in it. Well, I, over time, I'm going to be better at my communication. No, it may, it may look rough. I mean, you know, puedo usar el baño, por favor. Like, you know, I, <laughs> th- that, that may be, it may be like, dude, wait, what? Like, I, you know, I might be at a restaurant. I'm like, you know, puedo usar, like, why are you talking about the bathroom? Like, you, you need to order a steak. Like, what? 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 No. Like, so, you know, th- there are going to be blunders. Yeah. But I think as immersion occurs, you will be more adept. You will be more poised. You will, um, have more of, um, you know, like I said, an etiquette when it comes to dealing with this issue. And let's be honest with you, things in the digital age is constantly changing. Yeah. I mean, in real time, there's constantly uh, new trends, new thoughts. Don't say this, new, don't say that. You, you know, you, you got to get to the bread and butter. You got to stick with the bread and butter. You got to stick with the, with, with the, what is priority here? What's the value, the value here? The value is, what's the priority? The priority here is I see and hear my black brothers and sisters, and I'm going to amplify their voices. I'm going to take time to decenter some of the things going on in my world and recenter their humanity, their beauty, their intelligence, their culture. I think if you stick with that and you use your platform in a steward, in a good stewarding way, um, if you store that in a, in a, in a good way, rather, um, I think that's what really matters. And it's hard for me to say that because I'm, I'm you know, I'm a black man. And so, so I'm not a white, I can't, I, I, that is putting myself in your shoes, you know, where I'm like, man, that that's gotta be interesting for people who genuinely want to make a change, yeah. sincerely want to get involved, but are getting blasted. Right. They're getting, they're, getting, they're just getting blasted, you know? Um, but, but my thing, I'm like, come on, we got to give these people grace. You know, you, you, Drew Brees has recently uh, stirred up some controversy with, um, you know, he said in an interview uh, that Drew Brees, the, the Saints, the the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, uh, who said that um, in asked about all this going on, he said, "I'm not going to tolerate anyone who disrespects the flag and or our country. Uh, I, I will, I will never tolerate." And he just got dragged through the mud. I mean, LeBron James. Uh, I mean, white sports athletes, black sports athletes were calling him out. You know, that was, I think, at the, an insensitive thing to say. That was a, 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 a battle line that was drawn that was just like, ah, Drew, I don't know if that was the best thing. But my thing is, if you're, if you're putting, if you're taking actionable steps and speaking out, I, I just, I, I don't see why we, we got to drag folk for doing that. You know, if folks are dragging Taylor Swift, forcefully spoke out a couple of days ago. And you got folks that are like dragging her through the mud, like, where you been? Why haven't you been here before? I'm like, I'm like, let Taylor do Taylor. <laughs> you know, like, like girl, come on, man. Like, man, you know, like she's out here standing with us. How are we gonna drag her through the mud and 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 blast her, you know, because oh, she's just getting to the to the fight. She's just getting like, 
we we got to give folks grace that are becoming aware of this stuff. Yeah. And she probably know? was and getting so much hate for the time that she was quiet and not saying anything. And then as soon exactly. as she speaks up, she gets even more hate. And it's She's like, we can't win. Right. We can't win. It's how it feels. So, so, so I'm going to say this, I'll say this unequivocally, very clearly, any step you take that is bringing awareness to our plight, to oppression, naming statistics, uh, uh, centering voices, that is an actionable step to change, you know? And so I want to encourage you not to beat yourself up over that. That's not fair. You, 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 we are so grateful for your voice. We are so grateful for your platform. Uh, I am grateful to be on this podcast right now, to be talking to you about this. I am, I am humble and grateful. But the reality is, there, there's gonna, uh, Nancy, there's going to be some bad actors out there that are just mean. Nancy, they're just mean-spirited. <laughs> you just got mean-spirited folk. You know, and, and, and the reality is with this work, when you start fighting, speaking out against justice and everything, you, you develop some thick skin. It's, it, it takes time, and you're going to get some, some scars and some wounds. But you know it, it's um, it, 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 it's challenging, you know. Um, and so you have to, and, and that's why I tell white folks, you got to do what Jesus said. You got to count the cost. You know, you got you got to count the cost because guess what? I mean, it, it's there's going to be a cost. You might offend some more conservative people in your uh, fan base. They're gonna be like, man, I can't believe she's she's locking on. I've seen this. Uh, they're they're locking arms with the with the with the liberal Marxist movement. They're locking arms. You know, they, I'm I'm done. I'm I'm going to a different church. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to. I saw a predominantly white church post a black square, and they're like, "I'm leaving the church. You guys are locking arms with Marxists." You know. And then you got other folks out there on the other side of the spectrum. Well, I mean, you need to say more. Come on. You know what are you doing? I, I, I you know, it, it. It's just, it's just nasty out there, and just some folks are just mean spirited. You know. So I am sorry if that's happening to you. I, as a man of color who is a scholar, a practitioner who has been in this fight, I am thankful. And that's why we got to link up. That's why you got to link up with people, you, with your black friends who are like, who like, man, I see you and I appreciate it. it because yeah. you find courage, right? Absolutely. You find courage and, and, and encouragement and affirmation in that. And that's what keeps you going, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Refocusing on like, what, what's the, the mission here? Yes. What are we all after here? Yes. Absolutely. It's like, that's so encouraging to hear. And, yes. you know, just, it is very like, do this, don't do that, do right. this, don't do that. Right. And it's like, as soon as you do something, you feel like that's the wrong thing. And then you do this and you have regret. And, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. if I'm honest, I have really wanted to process this whole thing offline. Mm -hmm. Like I've just wanted mm -hmm. to go offline with it mm -hmm. and just work on it myself and with my family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if anyone listening, if that's what you're doing, keep doing that. Like, mm -hmm. that is great. Mm -hmm. I just felt like this week in particular, I didn't really have I don't know, the luxury or the ability to do that because I, I wanted to be in it. I had to right. be in it. So right. anyway, it's yep. just interesting when you do get in it, how messy it can become. Yes. And I think the most encouraging thing I've heard you say is just, if you are taking one step, that's all you can do, yes. but don't not take that step, exactly. take the step, exactly. even if it's messy, just keep, keep moving forward, right? Bounce forward. Exactly. Let's keep going. Yes. Um, Okay, so here's another situation. I've just got like maybe one or two more, and then we can kind of close it out. You're right on. Uh, but, uh, you know, I have been a business owner for, this is my 13th year, 
owning business last year, after 12 years, I closed my photography business Mm. and I had a team and I had a team of white women, precious girls, love the Lord. We would have, oh, and I should say most, almost all of the clients we served were white. Mm -hmm. So we would photograph weddings, families, very much so white team photographing white clients. And this is me being like very real and honest, Mm. we would have conversations as a team saying, we really, really want more people of color, of all different ethnicities and skin color to be in our clientele. How can we make that happen? And anytime we would get a lead that would come in um, and we would, you know, maybe poke around on Facebook or do some research and we would find out that they are African-American or of another ethnicity, we would go after that lead. We wanted them so bad. I mean, I wanted a more colorful business. I did. That was my heart. And I, I don't, we didn't do it. We didn't actually attain that in, in the 12 years of business. We certainly photographed a handful of weddings. Um, and we certainly photographed a handful of families uh, that were black families, black couples. Right. But, you know, I still struggle with that because I don't know what I could have done necessarily. Mm. And I think that's my ignorance mm. showing right now, possibly. But my heart was in one place and the business looked a different way. I know a lot of people listening here are probably feeling the same way as that. Like, how can I affect that change in my business? Because honestly, Darrell, I would feel bad finding a black family or a black couple and saying, hey, can we shoot your wedding for a discount? Or can we do this because we want people that look like you, right? That feels offensive to Mm -hmm. me. I don't know if that would be. But it felt like the wrong thing to do because I'm still trying to treat everyone equally. So I don't know. Mm. I, <laughs> this is me just being very real and honest yeah, with you, yeah, saying yeah. how can small business owners, women and men who have small businesses, maybe creative businesses that right now feel like they're very white, mm-hmm. what can we do to change that? Absolutely. Um a couple of things. The first is um I think mentorship from a person of color. Um, consistent mentorship and someone speaking into the life of your business or decision-making an organization is critical who can give you a different, see, this is the thing it, it, you know, you said that you and your team were together. You guys, you guys were trying to figure this out. Well, the reality is you guys were, you know, all white. Oh, we're all white. Right. And so what happens is that there's a bit of an, even though your intentions are in the right place, there's a bit of an echo chamber there where, totally. you know, your perspectives and not that you guys are all the same. However, um, there are a, co- a lot of commonalities there that I think um, maybe prevent you from getting different perspectives and strategies than if someone who came in to mentor you guys in that process um, uh, would, you know, if someone came in, someone you trust, someone that has um, um, experience in your field in what your what product you're selling, I think if you allow them to come in and speak into the life of your decision making and your strategies, I think that would be very helpful. Yeah. Um you, to give them that place and that voice to be mentored in the process of becoming not only more diverse, but inclusive. Not only more not only having more black and brown faces, but centering black and brown voices, beauty, art, and culture. So I think mentorship is very critical. Like who can I, who can I bring in to do some type of consulting, 
right? So good. Where yep. we're actually like someone, they are a bit of an expert. They, they have a proven track record of success um, and can, and, and frankly, are knowledgeable in what you're trying to do, you yeah. know, and, and understand that, understand your, your heart, understand that language uh, and can help you. Mentorship is key. Number two, uh, I would look at, um, um, at my book, page 100. I have a seven step process that helps churches become um, ready for racialized crises through being more inclusive and coming up with a plan. So the first step, and I won't, I'm going to fly through this so you can read this in the book, but the first step is organizing, you know, gathering, gathering together a core team of stakeholders, similar to what you did. We got to have some type of organization with what we want to do. Number two, we need to start to connect. We need to, and what, remember those three C's, co- cooperation, collaboration, coordination. How can we connect with other community stakeholders? Maybe it's a minority-owned phot- photography business, and we want to do a, a collaboration with a photo project. You know, when people of color see that and see that intentionality, Nancy, they're, they're like, okay, like, they see us. This is cool. I want to do business with them. I want to, you know? So connecting is important. Number three, assess. We've got to be willing to um, um, assess and, and take into account the opinions, perceptions, and ideas people have uh, about our business and about, you know, we just need feedback, you know, and, 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 and assess what were what our strategies. Uh, the fourth is envision, you know, it, that's where we have to start off with the vision. We got to be like, okay, what do we want to do here? What do we want to be? And once we have that, we start to prioritize. So like, here are some key metrics that we want to do. You gotta, you gotta have some set goals here. And and you got and listen, it's it's gonna take time. It it, it may not be uh, three months you get it or six months you get it. But what are you doing? You know, I love I love having a vision board. You know, um, it, it, because it gives me a visual of what I prioritize, what I want to prioritize in my life. So some type of prioritization is key. And then once you have like, you're prioritizing, you know, steps that you want to take clear metrics and goals, then you start to implement, you start to work towards it. Uh, and number six is, uh, or I'm sorry, number the seventh part of that is monitor and evaluate. And that's where we follow through on those measures that we've taken. That's where we say, okay, let's, let's find a way, maybe it's our board, maybe it's that mentor that I talked about earlier. But find a way for someone to monitor and evaluate our progress, right? We're laying out a goal. We're, we're, we're implementing these measures. And then we're putting in place accountability and measures to check our progress over time, right? Because if we don't do that, guess what? We're like we, six months later, a year later, well, what are we, you know, we didn't really make any headway. And then we get discouraged. I'm like, gosh, it's just not going to work. But what if we put together key things, uh, um, systems and structures in place to monitor our process of implementation towards these goals to becoming more diverse and more inclusive, you know? So I just think it, you know, that, that seven step process on page 100, I think really kind of lays out, lays out a good strategy to go beyond just diversity to true inclusion in your organization. So good. Yeah. That's worth buying your book right there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the whole book. Sounds awesome. But like, that is so helpful. And I think, Mm. you know, I predominantly have women who listen to this yeah, and white women, I'm sure. And I think just hearing those things is 
it's so practical and helpful. Yeah. And in my business, I've for years followed um, the traction framework, which is based on a book by Gina Wickman called Traction. And it's basically how you lay out goals, you know, for it's like a five or 10 year plan and then a three year picture and one year um, goal. And then you break it down every quarter. And that is where my business brain is going with all of this, like right. putting these steps, integrating the, what you want to accomplish in your business and in your work as part of those, you know, monthly goals that you're setting, the quarterly goals that you're setting, the yearly three year, Absolutely. you know, it's a long-term thing. Um, and I, but I love that. I love everything that you said. You know, if I could turn back time and go do it again, I totally would, sure. but just sure. getting a mentor, it's beautiful. It's so simple. Like, why didn't I think of yes. that? You know, but it's like, that makes so much sense. So thank yes. you so much for oh, speaking to that. Glad I could be helpful. Uh, wonderful. For sure. Well, I, listen, we could talk all day. I think yeah. we could go on and on about this. Pastor Darrell, I'm so thankful for your time. I know this oh, is probably yeah. my longest episode to date, which is, I'm happy with it. I'm so yeah. fine with that because I yeah. think every word needed to be said. Mm. Um, but I, I just kind of want to close with a few words of encouragement. And then if you have anything else that you would like to say, I would love to hear it. But, you know, I think for people listening, this is, it can feel, it can feel hard. It can feel uncomfortable. Um, I just want to encourage anybody listening. This, what we're talking about is not as much a political thing. Absolutely political voices sure. are here. Like there are, there is definitely a political game at play here. Like mm -hmm. I'm not discounting that. Right. The thing that we're trying to talk about is it doesn't have to do with politics. It has everything to do with the body of Christ. Right. It has everything to do with our hearts and it has everything to do, um, with fighting something that's evil and, and a, right. an attack of the enemy that the enemy has used to divide the church for so long. And I just want to say, I'm so grateful for you, Pastor Drill. I'm so thankful for your mm -hmm. voice. I'm humbled and honored that you would come here and, and share this with me, that you would open up and share a story from your childhood that's so moving and difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm so, I'm so humbled by that. I'm so grateful. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just want you to know I'm standing with you and mm. I love you and I love your family you, and I love your church and, and I love Thank the black you. community. And we want, we want to be in unity. We want to lift you up without discounting the things that you have gone through. And I am on my own path. I know I have a long way to go. Sure. A lot of yeah. that has probably been obvious throughout this podcast to no. people who are listening that might <laughs> be further along in this journey, but I just, you know, I'm so thankful and I think my encouragement to anyone listening is just start where you are and start with your heart. That's right. You know, that's, yeah, that's, that's it. Right. Just get before the Lord. And, and, you know, throughout the last couple of weeks on Instagram, a few of my black and brown brothers and sisters who have responded to things that I've said, the most encouraging and tender things that I have heard have been, God is going to lead you in this, Nancy. Amen. Thank you. God Amen. is leading you. Trust him. Let him lead the way. And that has been the most comforting. I mean, I have so good. I've just my heart's been so pricked when they have said that because I'm like, thank you for trusting the God in me, not me. Thank you for trusting God in me to do this work in me. And that is that is the best place to start. And Amen. let's let's all bounce forward from this yeah. the season that we are in. So right on. Yeah. 
Pastor Durrell, what do you what have you got to say to kind of close this episode? I'll I'll end with one of my favorite scriptures. Uh, you know, I I named my church six uh, eight the six eight church, but four eighteen church would be really cool. Luke four eighteen because I love I love the scripture and Jesus um, um, is he 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 stands up uh, in the synagogue and and to read the scriptures, the, the, particularly the scroll of Isaiah, uh, and he unrolls the scroll and he says, "This the spirit of the Lord is upon me." For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. In verse 20, he wrote up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day day. You know, this is exactly what Jesus went out and did. He went out and liberated those who were oppressed physically, socially, and spiritually. He cast out demons. He gave value to women. He said, bring the children to me. He identified with the poor and the hungry, and and he invited them to participate in the kingdom of justice and peace, in which the most vulnerable were no longer neglected. Just beautiful, beautiful story. You know, he joined in their lives and experience and their struggles. And when I think about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, Jesus knew what it was like to have a cousin executed by the powers that be. He knew it. Remember what they said? They, they, they came and they told him, John's dead. And he had, he had to go away. He had to grieve because of powers that brought death. To someone that he loved. And so, you know, what we're dealing with right now in our news, Jesus can relate to that. And so I want to say again to your listeners, I, I, thank you for being open, for your heart to be open. Uh, and we are grateful for you. We are thankful that you are learning, you're listening, that you see us. And I truly believe with the, by the grace of God, by the spirit of the Lord, we will bounce forward. We will have a brighter day. We will build a better future for our children and our grandchildren. Amen. Thank you so much for being here, Pastor Darrell. We are so grateful for you. Right on. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I feel like I'm going to be carrying that conversation with me as I bounce forward, and I really hope that you will too. I'm so thankful that we had the opportunity to listen and learn from Pastor Darrell today and just show up in a place that was safe. And even after we both ended the recording, we both just said thank you for making this a safe place. Thank you. I thanked him for making it a safe place for me to ask him questions. And he said likewise. I thought, It was such a beautiful and really important conversation to have. Now it's time to transition into the Work and Play Corner Store, which is where I draw from my personal life and experiences to bring you a book I'm loving and a thing I'm loving. I'll get a small commission from anything bought through these links, which will help me continue to bring this podcast to you every week. And today, of course, I'm going to be adding Pastor Darrell's book, There's a Storm Coming, How the American Church Can Lead Through Times of Racial Crisis. 
as well as our beloved baby Ava to the corner store. You've heard all about the book today, and like I said earlier, page 100 alone is worth buying the book for, but I'd love to explain baby Ava a little bit more. Baby Ava is a beloved baby doll in our home. I bought her for Millie three Christmases ago, and over time, Lyndon, my second daughter, has really grown attached to her. Baby Ava has brown skin. She doesn't look like the rest of our baby dolls, but she is hands down Lyndon's favorite baby doll. She is a very important baby doll in our home because Lyndon has to sleep with her every night. And you know, the conversations we're having right now about race and about things that we can do to be anti-racists and really um, have families that have conversations about this, that talk about this, that are reflective of our own beliefs about it, it's representative in a lot of the little things that we do, like buying brown and black baby dolls or uh, including more books um, with African-American children in them. And so this is just a small thing that we have done, very small thing that we have done um, to help our kids. And it's a small thing that you could do for your kids as well, which is why I wanted to include it in the links today. Thanks so much for listening to episode 66 of Work and Play with Nancy Ray. Everything I've mentioned today can be found in the show notes at nancyray.com slash podcast slash 66. And you can find me at nancyray.com or follow me at Nancy Ray on Instagram or Facebook almost daily. I'm going to close with words from Pastor Durrell's book. The church is unlike any institution in America. The church has been entrusted with the task of communicating this glorious news of Jesus Christ's mission to redeem all of creation. This book is aimed primarily at the church because I believe in the church as a conduit for God's mercy, love, compassion, and justice to flow to a broken and dark world. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.